2: Breaking news, we're waiting for a news conference on an Alaska Airlines plane that suffered a terrifying mid-flight blowout. And while we wait, Donald Trump takes his campaign to court. The big question? What happens now? Tonight, on Laura Coates Live. Now, Donald Trump says that he's entitled, quote, of course, I was entitled as the president of the United States and commander in chief to immunity. But there's no, of course, about it, frankly. And tomorrow, a federal appeals court in Washington DC takes up that very question of immunity. All this has, of course, never been tested before in court with good reason. We don't want to have presidents trying to be immunized all the time. What would that say about our country? But there is actually no reason that they've not never given a reason or had a reason that no sitting or former presidents ever faced criminal charges. That is until now, of course, arguing before the appeals court that his actions after the election were all just fine, that he's covered by what you might think of as some sort of a, maybe it's a magical constitutional cloak of presidential immunity. And that he cannot, he thinks, be prosecuted for his alleged efforts to overturn our free and fair election. And this one fact shows you just how important the whole thing really is to him. He is voluntarily sitting in a courtroom tomorrow instead of being on the campaign trail ahead of the Iowa caucuses that are actually one week from tonight. But can he convince the three judges of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals? It's a big question. A lot would have to happen. And by the way, it's not just the case in Washington, D.C., because Team Trump also wants the sweeping criminal conspiracy case against him and many others in Georgia to be thrown out. Why? What's he arguing? You guessed it. Presidential immunity. And in a sign that the immunity argument might not fly, a federal appeals court today denied Team Trump's request to rehear there presidential immunity argument in the E. Jean Carroll case. But what would happen, really, if a president had total immunity? Could he or she one day rob a bank, commit treason, or say, try to steal an election? Well, Michelle Obama says the rules are different for some. The bars are different for people in life that I've learned. Mm -hmm. Other people can. Other people can be indicted a bunch of times and still run for (laughs) for office. Mm -hmm. Black man can't. You just learn to be good. And in the end, you benefit from that extra resilience. I want to get right into all this with attorney Jeffrey Tubin. You know him. He's the author of The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court, as well as homegrown Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Jeffrey, so glad that you're here tonight. First of all, take a step back with me here. Many people are wondering if tomorrow is the day that the appellate court will decide whether Trump committed insurrection. That's not what tomorrow is. It's a pointed legal question as to whether immunity actually exists for a former president. What do you say?
0: Correct. I mean, what, what's important to remember about tomorrow is that it is a question about does Donald Trump have to stand trial? The, Trump is arguing that the whole case should be thrown out before it's even tried, which is unusual in a criminal case, because under his understanding of presidential immunity, he has the right not even to be tried. In most criminal appeals, you have to wait until you're convicted. But in a very narrow set of circumstances, you can argue that you don't even have to be go to trial that's what he's arguing, it's uh, it, it's it's a tough case for him, I think.
2: It's a really uphill battle for a lot of reasons. I mean, I remember the argument about if I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and no one would care. He's essentially saying, because I lived on Pennsylvania Avenue, that's all I have to have in order to have immunity in these cases. And of course, the court will look at this through the lens of the kind of wild, wild West novel argument. But many people, Jeffrey, as you know, and you've written the book on Supreme Court, They will have this assumption that this will all be decided according to who appointed these judges. That's not the case.
0: Not necessarily, although it's often a pretty good guide, especially in these politically charged cases. And remember, this is just the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. This could and might well go to the United States Supreme Court. But tomorrow's hearing is just before... Um, the the three-judge panel. And for those keeping score at home, it is two Democratic appointees and one Republican appointee who are hearing this case, which I think lends uh, some optimism to the uh, Jack Smith's team because because of that makeup. But it's also true that this argument, even for Donald Trump, is a pretty extraordinary stretch. Remember, when we covered the Mueller investigation. And that, there was much discussion of the fact that there is a Justice Department policy. It's not a law, but a policy that says a sitting president should not be indicted. But implicit in that policy is that, of course, he could be indicted later for something he did. And that's always been the assumption. I mean, remember, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon in 1974 for his crimes in Watergate, if he if he couldn't be prosecuted, there would be no need for a pardon. As
2: a former president, correct. I mean, for the, conduct it, while in office,
0: right? And that's exactly what the pardon was for, because everyone assumed that without the pardon, he could be prosecuted. Because once you are out of office, you are an ordinary citizen like everyone else.
2: Well, you know, interestingly enough people think about, well, this is going to be decided based on conservative viewpoints or liberal viewpoints. This is really kind of a reading of the Constitution and thinking about the text, which is not there, first of all, but also just the the legal common sense of it. I don't see this being decided on whether one is purportedly a liberal justice or a liberal judge versus a conservative wing of the judges. This is really the question. Can a president enjoy absolute immunity for things in office. Do you see it that way?
0: Well, I think the the, the point you made about the text is very important. Conservatives say they believe that the Constitution should be interpreted only based on what's in the text. For example, there's nothing in the Constitution about abortion, so there is no constitutional right to abortion, say conservatives. Here, There is nothing in the Constitution that says the president enjoys immunity. And in fact, everything in the Constitution suggests that after four years and going back to George Washington, you are returning to civilian life where you have the same rights Mm-hmm. As everyone else, including the right and the opportunity, if you want to call it that, to be charged with a crime. the opportunity.
2: Opportunity is not the word I'm sure he wants uh, I, I, to use, no, I'm sure but not, it, you know, yes. it's not that word. But then, if you look at that, then does the argument surrounding who is this sort of strict constructionist, this fancy term for well, hold on, if it's not really there, and I'm going to adhere to that, versus those who are thinking it's a living document that is more susceptible to being able to have more interpretations? Um, it's not so you know, untimely and anachronistic, does that all go away? That's my point. When you don't have any language in the Constitution itself, then it becomes a matter of, well, what was intended here? That somebody who has taken an oath or somebody that is the former president of the United States or a president of the United States, they can really do whatever they want and be the head of the executive branch of government?
0: See, this is why I think Jack Smith, the prosecutor, is is in such good shape in this case, because either interpretation, the strict textualist approach, the Constitution says nothing about presidential immunity from crimes, and the living Constitution approach, which says and implies the Constitution is, the, the president is not above the law. Both, both uh, approaches suggest that, that Trump can face trial. Even if Trump loses in the DC circuit, however, there's a way he could win, which is the issue of timing. Because this issue, this case is now stayed. There's a stay in effect where the the trial date is, is set for May, but the case is not yet proceeding to trial because of the pendency of this appeal. What's equally interesting in this case is not just how they rule. But whether they continue the stay, whether um, the, the D.C. Circuit or ultimately the Supreme Court says, OK, we're going to hear this case, but we're going to let the trial proceed. That issue, in fact, if, if you are concerned about a, a trial before the election, the, the timing issue is almost as important as the merits of the case. You
2: know, ultimately, this could go up to the Supreme Court. They've already said they're not going to weigh in on this matter specifically yet. It's why it's in front of the circuit court. It was already right. proceeding in that fashion. Um, but they could conceivably get this case after the ruling comes down, whatever that might be, probably sooner than later. The question, though, if it goes before the Supreme Court, if you're Chief Justice John Roberts, you've seen the numbers in terms of your quote unquote approval rating, your popularity, issues of credibility, the rakes that have been stepped on time and time again for ethical discussions and beyond, Um, you probably want unanimity here. No matter what comes out, you want this to be a decisive, not a 6-3 or something different than that. Is there a hope that this, if it goes to the Supreme Court on the issue of absolute immunity for a president? That unanimity might be on the horizon.
0: I mean, I, this argument by President Trump is so bad that that's a possibility. Remember, in 1974, when Richard Nixon said, I don't have to turn over the tapes to the Watergate special prosecutor. The Supreme Court in August of 1974 unanimously rejected that view. And the fact that the Supreme Court, which was not as politically polarized in those days, but still had a lot of different views on it, the fact that they ruled unanimously against the president. Made made the case irrefutable and made um, uh, Richard Nixon comply, and he did turn over the tapes, and the tapes ultimately um, sunk sunk his 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 presidency. Roberts will certainly want to try to get unanimity in a case like this. Whether whether <laughs> he does or not, that's a very different.
2: With my problem. dad, I always said, "Wishes were horses, beggars would ride." That's like the old school way of saying like. Uh, it who knows, be, it right? Be it'd, be not, nice. and, 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 it'd be nice, it'd
0: be nice. But I mean, you look at this court... Um, and it is much more politically polarized than it's been in many years, probably since the 1930s, they're not unanimous on many controversial cases.
2: I will say, you mentioned tapes, and of course, you're talking Nixon. I'm thinking Brad Raffensperger and what's happening in Georgia. And today, there was also a motion by the Trump legal team to get rid of that case on the same grounds of, look, if I'm immunized one place, I'm immunized another. Does that hold water? Because obviously, you're talking about Immunity in a federal court setting does it translate in the states?
0: Well, it depends what the courts hold. Um, yeah, if he is immune from criminal prosecution, he's immune in state court as well. So I, I, I mean, that's why the stakes in this case are so enormous because it's not just um, the, uh, uh, the the January six case that's pending in Washington. It is also. Um, the case in in Georgia, the the RICO case there. Potentially, it's also the New York prosecution Mm -hmm. um, that is scheduled to go to trial in March. I think That's the
2: hush money payment. The hush
0: money payment involving Stormy Daniels. I I think it would be a tough argument to make regarding the uh, Mar-a-Lago documents case, because it seems like almost all the criminal conduct alleged there took place after he was president in terms of hiding the documents. But, I mean, the the stakes in this case, the one that's being argued tomorrow, are bigger than just the January 6th case, certainly the Georgia case.
2: You know, it is, it's, it's so true when you look, I mean, isn't it, you think about just in our conversation, the number of times we have to clarify which case we're talking about when it relates to Donald Trump. I mean, this is mind boggling to think. We have oftentimes, you and I talked about the comparisons with Watergate and beyond, Like I almost feel like Watergate was was a kitten playing with a yarn ball sometimes compared to what we see in the full scope of what's ahead here. And this Supreme Court is going to be looking at not just Nixon, not just even Clinton, but now a whole range of issues. Speaking of Clinton, I want to make this clear to um, the audience because there's a lot of questions surrounding this, and I know you'll be uh, great to clarify this for us. So many people are looking at the issue of civil Um, civil litigation and conduct in office, I think of Bill Clinton and what that meant. Tell me why this is distinct, the idea of conduct in office, immunity and prosecution compared to that.
0: Well, remember that um, Bill Clinton was sued by Paula Jones for sexual harassment and the Supreme Court held in that case, even though he was a sitting president, he could face the civil case. It Hold on, like I want getting... to go
2: live for a second. We've got the NTSB
3: Thanks. news conference. And, and Leone, Benitez, Cardona, both of which are aerospace engineers for the NTSB and really specialists in structures, including uh, looking at the airframe, uh, the door plug, and uh, the surrounding structure around the door plug. Now, uh, one of the NTSB's core values is transparency. We believe when we have factual information that has been verified that it's our duty to provide it to the public and uh, to the media. And so tonight we have a lot of information that, they want, that we want to share. <clears throat> First, I'm going to uh, provide a, a summary of the event from the Flight Data Recorder. We're gonna talk about what our survival factors group did today, and then I'm going to talk about what our systems group did today, and then we'll have some discussions uh, from about structures and what the structures group did. So uh, for the summary of the flight data recorder, or from the flight data recorder, I'm going to read it at 17.06 and 47 seconds Pacific Standard Time, the aircraft departed runway 28 left at Portland International Airport. At 17.12 and 33 seconds, the recorded cabin pressure dropped from 14.09 to 11.64 pounds per square inch when the aircraft was at approximately 14,830 feet and 271 knots. The cabin altitude greater than 10,000 feet warning activated. At 17, 12 and 34 seconds, the master caution activated. The cabin pressure dropped to 9.08 PSI, at approximately 14,850 feet and 271 knots. At 1712 and 52 seconds, the master caution deactivated. At 1713 and 41 seconds, The aircraft continued to climb and reached a maximum altitude of 16,320 feet and began to descend. The airspeed was 276 knots. At 1713 and 56 seconds, the selected altitude changed from 23,000 feet to 10,000 feet. At 1714 and 35 seconds, the master caution activated for three seconds. At 1716 and 56 seconds, the aircraft began a left turn from 121 degrees. The altitude was approximately 10,120 feet. At 1717, the aircraft descended below 10,000 feet. At 1718 and 5 seconds, the aircraft altitude was approximately 9,050 feet and the airspeed was 271 knots. The cabin altitude greater than 10,000 feet warning deactivated. The cabin pressure was 10.48 psi. At 1726 and 46 seconds, the aircraft landed on runway two eight left at Portland International Airport. Now, the survival factors team interviewed uh, the remaining two flight attendants: one from the aft of, aft of the aircraft and one for, from forward. Uh, Their interview and discussion was consistent uh, with the interviews of the other two flight attendants. Uh, They also reported pretty significant crew communications challenges during the event. They didn't know what was occurring. Uh, They uh, were certainly concerned, uh, they stated, about the four unaccompanied minors, and their focus was on them and the three lap children at the time. Uh, The two flight attendants in the aft outboard seats in the aft galley had difficulty seeing what was going on uh, in the cabin and in the aisle. It's very difficult from that location to see anything. There is a very, very small mirror provided to look down the aisle. It's not sufficient. So it was very difficult for them to see. They, uh, the flight attendants mentioned uh, that the uh, communications was so poor that they felt like they, they really needed guidance and information, uh, and it was it a was pretty terrifying event. Now, um, with that said, uh, I know that a lot of media is reaching out to the flight attendants. The, the interviews have been very emotional. This was a really significant event with zero information at the time. There's a lot of trauma that they are working through. It's going to be a long process. It was terrifying. I would ask, the NTSB is asking, please give them that time. They are working with peer-to-peer counselors, um, and and they just need that time to heal, and they have asked us to mention that uh, in this media briefing, and I would really ask that you respect their wishes and give them that time to really begin to process uh, what they experienced. Now, the cockpit door. Uh, we found today that the cockpit door is designed to open during rapid decompression. It is designed to open during rapid decompression. However, no one among the flight crew knew that. They were not informed. Uh, So Boeing uh, is going to make some changes to the manual, which then hopefully will translate into uh, procedures and information for the flight attendants and for the uh, Uh, crew uh, in the um, cockpit. As far as the oxygen mask, that we weren't sure if it deployed uh, or if it was stuck, Uh, it did deploy. Uh, We interviewed the passengers in that uh, row and uh, they had put uh, the the oxygen mask back up in the panel, which was the other thing we suspected, Um, but it did deploy and was working. Now on to systems, our systems group uh, focused on the cabin pressure control system on the aircraft. This is the auto pressurization light that illuminated, uh, that, I, uh, that we have gotten a lot of questions on. This system is designed as a triple redundant system with one primary cabin pressure controller. It's a computer system. There is a secondary cabin pressure controller. a secondary, That's a secondary computer system. And then there's a manual controller. So there are, uh, it's a triple redundant system. That means that if the primary controller fails, the flight crew switches to the secondary controller. If that fails, they can switch to manual. Any one of these systems is fully capable of maintaining safe cabin pressurization. In fact, if either one of the computer systems is inoperative, the FAA allows the operator to continue flying the aircraft. We have verified from the maintenance logs that the redundant system operated as designed on December 7th, January 3rd, and January 4th, going into the alt mode, not needing to go into the manual mode. At this time, we have no indications whatsoever that this correlated in any way to the expulsion of the door plug and the rapid decompression. Now, the NTSB is very thorough so we will uh, go back and look at the flight data recorder, and we will get data on cabin pressure. And we're also going to download the memory on the cabin pressure controllers. We may have to pull the units to see why it was acting up. Um, but a Boeing, we have asked Boeing uh, for a specialist uh, to arrive tomorrow to work through uh, through this so we can... Uh, Just go through the rest of it, but again, no indication of any correlation between the two. With respect to the ETOPS restriction, Alaska Airlines reported to the NTSB that their internal policy is to restrict aircraft with multiple maintenance maintenance write-ups for certain aircraft systems from flying ETOPS flights For a period of time. That's not required by the regulation. That is an extra step that Alaska Airlines put in place. Now, ETOPS stands for Extended Twin Engine Operations. What that means is that ETOPS uh, permits twin engine airplanes to operate over a route that contains a point further than three hours flying time, three hours for this aircraft from the nearest airport. And the restriction was put in place per Alaska as an extra step to ensure safety and to allow them to conduct maintenance. As for the structures, we, um, I want to start by thanking Bob who all of the media successfully outed, um, but Bob apparently was a star with all his students today. Um, I I, I really want to thank the community overall. I, I, I can't thank you enough. Every time the NTSB asks for help, every single time the community pulls through, And I I just want to say thank you to everyone. I especially want to say thank you to Bob. I'm sure he was a hit at school today, Um, so that's very exciting. Uh, We did go out at 7 a.m. this morning to retrieve uh, the door plug. Um, We are still looking for the bottom hinge fitting and a spring, it's a pretty large spring, Uh, The the fitting is a green circular piece with a hole in it. Uh, It's not key to the investigation. This is not something that's key to us determining anything or ruling out anything. We're just fine. But it's always nice to have some of the pieces if you find it. And uh, if anyone does, please call um, uh, NTSB. Please email us at witness at ntsb.gov or contact local law enforcement. Again, I want to thank local law enforcement and the FBI for helping us also look uh, uh, throughout uh, the early stages of our investigation.
4: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or
1: sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it...
2: we just been hearing from uh, the NTSB today, as they've given a conference, a press conference on what we have learned so far. They have detailed a lot of information about what we now know from the flight data recorder, also the systems operations involving what sort of system they would have had in place to inform them of reduced cabin pressure. It was a redundant system to tell them that if one failed, the other also would kick in. There's a lot of flight attendants who have been interviewed. They're very emotional right now, understandably about the traumatic and what they call a terrifying and significant event. They are obviously uh, trying to work through what they saw. They had very little and poor crew communications at that time, unable to see down the aisle of the aircraft. They were very focused. We're learning now on the four four unaccompanied minors who were on this aircraft including also there were three lap children they were very concerned with about the cockpit door we also learned today was in fact designed was designed to actually open during a rapid decompression in the actual aircraft unfortunately no one of the flight crew was aware of that so it added to the trauma and the terrifying experience of what they saw during that event The oxygen did deploy and was, in fact, functioning, and we're learning more about this redundant system. And I want to turn to our panel right now to walk through a lot of this very important information. CNN Transportation Analyst and former inspector General for the Department of Transportation, Mary Schiavo, also Dennis Tager. He is the spokesperson for Allied Pilots and has been flying for American Airlines for 30 years. Also, here is Miles O'Brien, CNN's aerospace analyst. Thank you all for being here. We're learning a lot about what they just walked through. And begin with you here, Mary, the NTSB chair, walking through the play by play of how it all unfolded, going through the actual flight data recorder, talk about the cabin pressure, the knot speed, the altitude, the master caution warnings, all that she talked about. What stood out to you?
5: Well, I think what stood out to me is the, you know, the consistency of the flight. It was at 271 knots for about 310 miles an hour for it. Um, You know, it got to approximately 1500 feet when something started happening. You know, that. that altitude is very significant because there are FAA regulations that say at that altitude, uh, that's the altitude that the plane is presumed that people can survive. A plane is supposed to be able to uh, correct to that altitude. So that was significant. But, you know, it would have been good. And we understand that there was a problem. The circuit breakers weren't pulled. It would have been good to have the cockpit voice recorder to go along with that. But since the pilots and everyone else on board survived, they will simply just continue to interview them for the additional information that would have been on the cockpit voice recorder had it not been recorded
2: over. Mary, at that point, um, were you thinking that you'd learn something additional other than an in-person or otherwise interview? What would that cockpit recorder have been able to suggest or tell you that you couldn't have in an um, interview setting?
5: Well, sometimes there are additional uh, sounds captured on the cockpit voice recorder that the uh, flight crew doesn't recall. Uh, Sometimes there are sounds of uh, equipment and things that are occurring, turning on and off. Uh, You know, sometimes it's just the warning signals that's on there. Uh, But in in this case, like I said, they, they often... In an accident scenario, they don't have everyone still alive and able to tell them what happened, so they're fortunate here for that. But you're just looking for sounds in the cockpits or things that may not be otherwise captured in the investigation phase. And this has also been a sore point for some time with the United States National Transportation Safety Board because European countries do require that to be 25 hours on newer plane models. Um, And in the United States, it's two hours.
2: I mean, Dennis, I have to tell you, I'm I'm a little surprised every time I hear this data. I mean, one would think... If a door or a part of a plane blows off for whatever reason, one would override the ultimate two hour or however many windows. You would want to have that data and recording preserved, but it's apparently not there. Um, Dennis, the chair said that the flight attendants and crew did not know what to expect in that situation, that Boeing will be working on informing personnel Mm -hmm. going forward. Um, Why wouldn't they know as part of their overall training and being on these aircrafts are so familiar with? And how long could it take to get him up to speed?
6: Well, they know what to do. A rapid depressurization, we rehearse frequently in the simulator. Um, So what, what you have to get into is get into the cockpit right now. When you have a rapid depressurization, the physiological effects are dramatic. They're violent. Imagine that door blowing open. Yeah, Boeing didn't tell us that it blows open. But I can guarantee you the pilots are also, these are memory items as well. We're reaching down for our mask, a very large mask that squeezes over the face. It's something we practice, but it's another level of disorientation for the execution of getting that airplane to stop climbing because now you're executing an emergency descent checklist. And that means getting the airplane down to where the human beings can survive without the oxygen. I cannot say enough about these pilots' quick action and the violence that occurred when that airplane rapid depressurization occurred I mean, it ripped shirts off of some passengers. These pilots focus on the the main procedure and that's to get the airplane descending down, down to that 10,000 foot mark at a minimum, so that when the passengers came off the oxygen, because that oxygen is not infinite, they would be able to survive. So this was an actual great story about trained professionals. Now, flight attendants not knowing what's going on, they're sitting in back. I understand that. This is a a. that happens in seconds and the people who needed to react in seconds did and those pilots did and they'll be able to get all the details from them so getting locked up in a minutia of a recording and all the checklists that are had to be done i can guarantee you nothing is done with the malice intent of hiding anything so these are heroes today and right now we have a lot of questions for Boeing. How yes. in the heck did this happen?
2: My, I mean, you're absolutely right. Miles thinking about there, and we heard from the NTSB um, chair, they're looking for a bottom hinge fitting, a spring, which they say is not key to the investigation. They just want to have all the pieces. I mean, thank goodness no one was hurt. Thank God that nobody was, um, was, it was tragically injured or killed on this aircraft. But this could have been extraordinarily bad. And I'm wondering after you have listened to what you just heard, I mean, what is your confidence level in terms of what could have caused this to happen? And and can it be quickly addressed? People are getting ready to, getting ready to fly all over this country every single hour of the day, and they're now worried whether they're on that type of aircraft or otherwise.
7: Yeah, I, it's understandable, the worry. Uh, Laura, this one is going to be solved by looking at metal. Uh, you know, we can talk about the cockpit voice recorder and like data recorder and the, and the lights and that illuminate on the pressurized system. But ultimately they're going to be looking at those bolts and those spring hinges and they're going to be looking for what they call witness marks, which is to say damage evidence to see if a bolt or a nut sheared off or if there are missing pieces or if there's any evidence, that a nut was screwed on and a little wire wasn't put through the bolt itself to ensure it doesn't loosen. Uh, Basically, the way this door is rigged up, if those bolts are not in and locked in, it's kind of spring-loaded almost like a mousetrap to uh, be expelled from the aircraft if if it gets jostled around. And so I think... uh, the pieces are probably there or maybe they aren't there. And that's the key. What might be missing is very important. And as we've heard earlier today from the Associated Press, United has found some loose bolts in similar aircraft. So it appears in in Renton, Washington, when these fuselages were assembled, Uh, some bolts may not have been tightened properly, or at least that seems to be where we're headed on this. But it's still a little bit early to draw that conclusion. I do think we'll know, though, and I don't think at the end of the day people should feel uh, particularly unsafe about this aircraft. There's no fundamental design flaw here. It appears they might have missed a step in the construction of the aircraft, and that's crucial.
2: Well, yes, the devil is certainly in the details. I mean, talk about trying to find a needle in a haystack trying to assess whether the hinges and the bolts on these big, big aircrafts across the entire fleet have been handled appropriately. Mary Schiavo, Dennis Tazier, Miles O'Brien, thank you all for helping us unpack all of this. Well, President Biden was visiting the site of the 2015 racist massacre in South Carolina to warn about political violence. And he drew a direct comparison between today and the time of the Civil War.
1: The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events.
7: At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable
6: are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education.
1: Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
7: The defeated Confederates couldn't accept the verdict of the war. They had lost. So they say they embraced what's known as the lost cause a self-serving lie that the Civil War is not about slavery. There are some in this country trying trying to turn a loss into a lie, a lie which, if allowed to live, will once again bring terrible damage to this country. This time, the lie is about the 2020 election, the election which you made, your voice is heard and your power known.
2: President Biden drawing a direct line from slavery, the Civil War and Jim Crow, to the very divisions of today, seeking to rally black supporters from the pulpit of the South's oldest African Methodist Episcopal Church, Mother Emmanuel Church, the site of a racist mass shooting in 2015. Let's talk about it now with Michael Eric Dyson, professor of African American and Diaspora Studies at Vanderbilt University. He is the co-author of Unequal, A Story of America, Also here, Alan Jenkins, professor at practice at Harvard Law School. He is the co-author of the January 6th, the graphic novel series. So glad to have both of you here today. It's so relevant to pick each of your minds and your brains this evening. Michael, I'll begin with you. Um, President Biden returning to the very state that catapulted him to the top of the Democratic primary in 2020, you know... Nikki Haley is calling it offensive that he even gave a speech, a political one, at this very location. Um, But you call this vengeance, Biden. What do you say?
8: Yeah, well, I I think that what uh, Joe Biden understands is that uh, it is necessary to link the past and the present, to talk about historical narratives, to speak about the way in which there are parallels between the attempt to engage in the manipulation of facts and history for the purposes of white supremacy then after the civil war and what's going on now the attempt to rewrite history to pretend that slavery wasn't central it is interesting that the former governor of south carolina uh nikki haley uh who did an honorable act by removing the confederate flag but only after the death of those nine people in that church later saying she would have done something differently, uh, has wish, has been wishy-washy and f- flipping from one side to the other in regard to her strong and declarative resistance to white supremacy mm-hmm. and complicit with it. And also all the president was trying to do is to say, this is what we've got to do, tell the truth, understand history, root it in the facts of the case, and talk about it in ways that Common human beings understand.
2: Well, Alan, to that point, I mean, he was not only talking about this in you know broad strokes from a ten thousand foot perspective. He also gave a litany of accomplishments that he has gotten done for the black community. He talked about uh, low black unemployment. He talked about appointing the first African American to sit on the Supreme Court. He talked about pursuing other ways to provide student loan relief. You know, he's gone from January sixth this past week to now talking about this from this particular vantage point. Frankly, a lot's happened in between. But do you see this approach as delivering the results that he wants?
9: Well, you know, I think it's a start. Really, you can't bring a PowerPoint to a culture war. And that's what we're in. And so I think the strongest parts of this speech were when uh, the president talked in terms of values of democracy and the truth. Uh, and uh, equal dignity and the idea that we're all created equal. He acknowledged that we've never fully achieved that uh, value as a nation. Uh, but those were strong words. He, I was gratified that he invoked white supremacy as a, a threat to democracy, although I wish he had unpacked that a little for people who maybe are less familiar with the notion. I, you know, I think the, the kind of laundry list of accomplishments They're important. You know, I think they have to be said. And, you know, polling shows that a lot of voters aren't familiar with what uh, the president has accomplished. But I think ultimately that's not what's going to win the day. It's going to be the story, the narrative that he's conveying, the values uh, in which he roots that and the vision he has for America based on those values.
2: I do wonder if that will translate. You know, talking about the vision of America seems very forward-thinking, except that people are grappling with the present day of what is America? Who is America? Where will America be in all these aspects of it? So it's curious as to all the candidates, frankly, up and down a ballot, how they approach this very important question. You know, Michael, the president's speech didn't go off without a hitch. Um, he was just starting, of course, when this happened. Listen.
6: That's all right.
7: That's all right. That's all right
2: Now obviously you've heard the four more years, but also the ceasefire chants, but I was really honed in to this particular moment. And this, you might not have heard specifically what preceded those ceasefire chants. Listen to this.
5: If you really care about the lives lost here, you should honor the lives lost and vote for a ceasefire in
2: Palestine. So they're going right to this notion of what the idea of if you care about your faith, if you care about what's happening, if you care about um, the principle you're talking about today, you know, this is a challenge that President Biden's going to have to face, Michael, in, tr- in terms of even within his own democratic base, about what's happening overseas and what has happened here at home. How do you resolve that tension if you're Biden?
8: Yeah, well, as my colleague said, you may not be able to bring a, um, you know, a point to the, the PowerPoint uh, to
2: a culture PowerPoint. war. I love that line.
8: But, <laughs> but you can darn sure bring a soundtrack to a protest. And so the reality is that Joe Biden has to play a different song. He has to narrate his story and his truth by saying look first of all permit people to say what they got to say don't try to shut them down it is difficult in this time of crisis when people have been drawing parallels that have been long established between african-american struggle here in this nation and, and oppression of other peoples around the world, peoples of color, and in this case, specifically Palestinian people.
2: Well, Alan, um, do you risk the conflation? That's the that's the concern I think Michael's alluding to. If you're political, you're trying to talk, essentially the political soundbites and trying to appeal to the widest audience, you risk the conflation aspect of it.
9: Well, I think when you articulate a set of values, you're gonna be held accountable for those values. And you know that's where the rubber hits the road. I think it's also the case that especially with young black voters they're looking for transformative change not tinkering not just tinkering around the edges so you know important that biden is trying to do loan forgiveness the conservatives and the supreme court have stood in his way but what's his vision for everyone to be able to afford to go to college into the future you know it's important that he's reduced the prices of prescription drugs but what about making healthcare a human right i think you know voters don't they, voters understand that we're in a difficult political moment they're not mm-hmm. necessarily expecting the president to deliver on every aspect of his values but he has to articulate a broad vision that would eventually achieve those values if, if he's able to, to move forward unencumbered. That's, I think, one of the things that was missing from this speech. Maybe he'll get there, we'll see.
2: Well, we'll have to, in any event, everything's gotta be more than lip service for a voter to really turn out and get off the couch. Michael Eric Dyson, Alan Jenkins, thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Well, there's some breaking news. It's a big night for Michigan in the College Football National Championship. We'll break it all down for you next. Well, look, someone had to lose their undefeated record tonight. The Michigan Wolverines are the new college football champs, beating the Washington Huskies. 34-13 34-13 in a very intense game. It's also the Wolverines' first national championship win since 1997. Let's talk with senior contributor Akari Champion. Carrie, I'm so glad that you're here.
10: This is a huge win. It's a huge win for Michigan. Uh, just a quick recap, their season has not been easy. They have been battle-tested. They were accused of cheating, stealing signs from other uh, opponents. Uh, this coach, The head coach, Harbaugh, was suspended for three games. They still went undefeated, and at the end of the day, they take home the biggest prize. And now, I'd like to see what people have to say because Mission for some reason has that Yankees feel to them, the Los Angeles Lakers feel to them. Uh, just teams just love to hate them and they did it all.
2: Well, they did it all and they did it well. Yeah. And decisively tonight. Thinking of other another league though, the NBA, Draymond mm-hmm. Green came back. He'd been
10: suspended for what, 12 games? Yep. He came back. It's interesting because he has a podcast. I, I I, already know his future will be doing what we are doing. Mm-hmm. He'll be sitting across from you explaining to, to you why he's so great. But um, <laughs> on his podcast, he was very honest. And he talked about how during the suspension, he thought about retiring. And the commissioner of the league, Adam Silver, had to tell him, guess what? You're making a rash decision. Do not retire. There's still so much more for you to do. However, and I know Draymond very well, and I'll say this, A lot of the issues he was dealing with were self-inflicted. So you can't say it's too much if you're not willing to take the responsibility. Um, Too much is given, much is required. You don't get to make all this money and behave any kind of way and do whatever you want to do without people saying, you're no longer allowed to behave that way. You get a reputation. The narrative was already created that he was a bit of a bully, that he was not paying attention to the rules. I disagree with that. I think he's a great person. But I think sometimes we all need a timeout. And that's what this was for him.
2: Well, this is our timeout because the show is now over. Karen Champion, thank you. I know. It's a timeout. I know, but it's a good timeout. (laughs) I got to tell you, thank you. We'll be right back after a little bit to a little bit more of the show. Thank you, Laura. (laughs) Thank you. We showed you earlier this hour the door plug that was ripped out of that Alaska Airlines flight and found in someone's backyard. Well, it wasn't just the door plug that was strewn across Portland. Someone actually found an iPhone that appears to have fallen out of the plane.
9: I found a phone sitting on the side of the road that uh, had apparently fallen 16,000 feet. It was still pretty clean, no scratches on it, uh, sitting under a bush and and it didn't have a screen lock on it. So I opened it up and it was in airplane mode with a travel confirmation and baggage claim for Alaska 1282.
2: Is that the most wild thing you have heard? Are you kidding me? I dropped my phone from the desk and it chatters, but fine. An NTSB spokeswoman tells CNN that they've since gotten the phone and they turned it over to Alaska Airlines. Thank you for watching. Our coverage continues.